This is the Sustain UW podcast, hosted by student interns from the UW-Madison Office of Sustainability. With help from professors, student activists, campus staff, and other guest experts, we're here to investigate common narratives of environmentalism and to question the status quo. Why is the environmental movement so whitewashed? Is recycling as effective as we think it is? Why are there people struggling to access food in our communities? Is UW living up to its environmental legacy? We want to know what's up with sustainability and where should we go from here? Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Sustain UW podcast. I'm Marina. And I'm Hannah. And we'll be your host for today's episode, which is all about food security in the Madison area. This is a really important topic, and it's become even more relevant due to the coronavirus pandemic. I don't know about you, Marina, but I became interested in food primarily for environmental reasons or initially for environmental reasons. Um, I believe that food is the most tangible way that people sort of interact with the environment. It's also one of the things that they can most easily address on an individual level. So there's something really unique about that. I've been increasingly interested in food access. I think both through my work with the Office of Sustainability, working a lot on food resources on campus for students, and also through the pandemic, realizing just how important it is and all the different factors involved in food that the pandemic has really highlighted, including like access, healthy food, um, environmental aspects, economic aspects of, of food systems and the way everything is structured. You know, we saw exactly how um, precarious our food system was when, you know, for example, the meat packing plants all got shut down and suddenly there was a shortage across the country. So it's a topic that I think people are increasingly aware about and particularly with recent events. I've seen a lot of amazing creativity in the local food system in particular to support people in the pandemic. And for me, this episode was a really exciting opportunity to just increase awareness about local food systems and highlight some of the innovation going on there. But let me stop talking. And Marina, what um, kind of inspired you to be part of this episode? Um, Yeah, I think as soon as our office mentioned wanting to do an episode on food and food systems, I was definitely intrigued. Um, Similarly to you, I think I first got interested in food systems um, because of sustainability and environmental reasons. I really like documentaries, so learning about food waste and how it contributes to climate change really horrified me. Um, uh, It caused me to stop eating meat, and I even stopped eating palm oil for a while um, in order to help save the orangutans. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting one. There's a um, professor here, Holly Gibbs, who does really important research on that topic. So shout out to her. I took a class with her last year. I will have to check her out. It might, it might make me um, pick up my <laughs> ban on palm oil again. Um, but yeah, and then I kind of got more interested in um, local food systems and food access and just looking at food on a more people-based level. Um, and then, yeah, I think we can both agree that we decided to take a f- do the food episode, but with a lens um, focusing on the pandemic, because I think the pandemic exposed a lot of holes in our society and um, just a lot of issues that have already been going on, but got worse due to the pandemic. And Um, Food systems is definitely one of them. Absolutely. And I think it also um, exposed or just reminded people once again that food is really so important and so crucial to everyone. You can't have a healthy, successful life without good food to eat. And the access to good food is just all over the board. There's so many factors at play, Um, you know, geography, historical practices of like housing discrimination, controlling where people live. Um, where fast food restaurants are, all those kinds of things. So I know you've done some looking into um, food security. Do you want to start by just giving us a little bit of a background on what food security looks like and what kind of the state of it is in Wisconsin? Definitely. According to Public Health Madison and Dane County, um, food security is the access to sufficient food for a healthy and active life for all household members at all times, Um, whereas food insecurity occurs when food access is insufficient 
or uncertain for at least one person in the household at some point in the year. So when households are food insecure, people worry about food running out without having money to buy more. And oftentimes they will cut back on the size of their meals or skip meals entirely due to lack of money. So whether you you have like noticed food insecurity in your own community or experienced yourself, it is present everywhere to varying degrees. And according to the USDA, more than one in 10 households totaling over a quarter million of all Wisconsin households are food insecure. According to Second Harvest, which is a food bank aimed at ending hunger in southwestern Wisconsin, um, one in six children in southwestern Wisconsin face hunger. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and it's it's especially significant when you think about how important good um, healthy food is for kids, both in terms of their um, kind of physical development and their relationship with food. So looking at these statistics, we know obviously there's a problem with food security and we know it's so important. It affects your life so much, especially if you're at a young age. So what what are some of the ways this situation with food security and insecurity could be improved? Yeah, so um, first, food security is based on like economic and social factors. So when thinking of food insecurity solutions, um, it's important to kind of address the issue from all angles. Public Health Madison and Dane County actually came up with a model for food security, which kind of um, conceptually organizes different efforts um, into four different categories. And so the first one is economic security. Okay, so kind of the basic, do you have enough money to pay for food, that kind of thing, right? Exactly. Making sure you have a job and a job that will pay you enough to feed you and everyone in your household. Next is access to affordable and nutritious food. Okay, so more kind of geographical spatial aspects, you know, maybe histories of redlining or controlling where people live or controlling investment communities might create food deserts or places where there isn't um, any grocery stores or access to healthy food? Yeah, definitely. Like this section definitely looks more into a community-wide approach, looking at these neighborhoods that have been potentially redlined or just disadvantaged, um, making sure that there are grocery stores or um, uh, farmer's markets or anything that helps to bring healthy and affordable food into that geographical location. And then next is nutrition assistance programs like uh, food stamps or SNAP. Yeah, I've seen um, increasingly these programs at farmers markets and other places, not just supermarkets, which I think is really cool. While the Dane County Farmers Market was running last year, you would see signs up for, you know, we accept SNAP, which I think is really cool to expand these kinds of federal programs to a more um, creative approach. I agree. Um, I think it really like returns power and control to the individual um, who just needs a little help making sure that they um, have food for every meal. So yeah, giving them the the options to like choose what they want to get. And then the last one, of course, is uh, the emergency food system. So this is just uh, programs like food banks, food pantries and meal sites. Um, that make sure to serve individuals and families during times of crisis. And we talk about that a little bit later in the episode. That's the kind of thing that really varies a lot by region. So you might have a really strong food bank system in, in one city, but you might have a relatively poor one in another city. And like we've kind of been talking about, food insecurity is affected by all these different um, socioeconomic problems, historical problems, etc. So I imagine there's issues of kind of not only finance, but transportation and where you live, all these different parts, right? To um, those numbers that you mentioned earlier about like how many people are food insecure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think food insecurity at its root is an equity problem. And this is due to the unequal access to and distribution of food. Um, Other factors are income, access to transportation, uh, grocery stores in your area. These all affect um, a household's ability to find food. And many um, of these households are often 
people of color or um, people of low income. Public Health Madison in Dane County actually looked further into food insecurity by breaking it down by race and geography. And when you break it down, you can see that Hispanic households, Black households, households with single mothers, and households below the federal poverty level often experience um, food insecurity at a rate of four in 10, or like every four in 10 households um, experience food insecurity versus the earlier we learn the average is one in 10. So I think that's extremely eye-opening to how um, deeply rooted in equity this problem is. Yeah, there's a fairly widespread term, food desert, which is used to describe places which have very few grocery stores and very few opportunities to purchase food, particularly fresh, nutritionally dense, healthy food, um, produce, that kind of thing. But some people have criticized this term in recent years because it implies that the situation is natural in a way, because deserts exist due to reasons outside of our control. So there's been a new term that people have been suggesting lately, which is food apartheid. And that gestures a lot more to the systemic aspect of food access and the ways that all these historical, socioeconomic, cultural things have been put in place over time. We mentioned redlining, we mentioned um, targeting low-income communities with fast food, all these kinds of things. And it's um, really built up over time in a very systemic way to decrease people's access to food in particular communities. So um, Rena, I know you saw saw or read some sort of talk about this topic. Do you want to share some quotes from that? Yeah. So um, two women who are experts on this topic are Karen Washington, who is a farmer and activist um, and co-owner of Rise and Root Farm, and Leah Penniman, who's co-founder of Soulfire Farms and the author of Farming While Black. I will make sure to um, include all this stuff in the episode notes if you want to check out the books or talk. Um, And The talk was a series called Resilient Future Series, and the two women discussed what it's like being a farmer during the 21st century, um, and they also bring up that topic of food apartheid. Um, Karen especially had a lot to say about it, um, and she kind of explained, like you did, Hannah, the difference between food apartheid and food deserts, saying that, um, quote, food desert doesn't open up the conversation that we need to have when it comes to race when it comes to income equality, and when it comes to so much, end quote. Um, And she also provided historical context behind explaining actually how enslaved Black people were often given leftovers to eat that nobody wanted. And Washington said that she felt growing up um, that her neighborhood was also given these types of leftovers. Um, Wow, that's, that's a pretty powerful way of putting it. Yeah, definitely. I had not thought about it until I heard her say it. Um, and so like poor quality food is essentially the leftovers. Exactly. Like junk food, fast food, processed foods, um, poorly stocked grocery stores, all of that tends to, I think, would start to feel like leftovers um, if that's all you ever had. And she said that this... Um, trend gave her community sickness, disease, and greatly decreased their quality of life. Um, And she described it as a genocide of her community, which was also a very powerful way of thinking about it. And not only is this disproportionate effect on food access present in communities in general, but it's also present on college campuses. Um, A national study done in 2016 called Hunger on Campus actually showed that 20% of students at four-year institutions are food insecure, Um, But when it comes to BIPOC students and first-generation students, that number nearly triples. So it's really present um, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it really is present everywhere, but at the same time, it's kind of invisible. You know, like you don't see it a whole lot, and I feel like people don't talk about it a whole lot. Um, So it's really important to be a little more open about the problem and about the resources to address this. Um, So obviously, we know there's an issue of food access in both college campuses and the greater community, since, as we mentioned, we're both students on the UW campus and are interested in these topics. We have a fairly good idea of what's going on in terms of student food security. But we wanted to talk to someone more directly involved with campus food security to hear how the pandemic has affected their operations. So that will be coming up in just a moment. 
This podcast discusses sustainability on the UW-Madison campus and features guests and hosts affiliated with the university. It does not, however, reflect the views of the Office of Sustainability, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. I am one of the two urban ag directors with FHK. That's Molly DeVore, a UW-Madison student and urban agriculture director of FH King, a student organization on campus that addresses local food and food security. So our full title is FH King Students for Sustainable Agriculture, um, and we're a non-hierarchical board of nine members. So we have our two urban ag directors, um, our two farm slash garden directors, uh, our one education director, our one programming director, our finance director, and our admin director. So it's a lot of people. Um, and our primary core mission is our one acre farm, which is over in Eagle Heights. Um, and that's where we grow veggies for students. And we give those veggies out for free during harvest handouts, which is usually, I'll say June through October is usually the season when we have enough vegetables get, to give out. And then during the school year, we do different programming. So in before COVID, we would do things like get the dirt dinners where we'd have speakers come talk about agriculture and sustainability. And we'd also give out free food um, or free meal. And then we also had different educational events and different like fun activities. Like I know last February, we had like sustainable self-care, which is where we learned about like the importance of like using sustainable products. Um, And then also in the summer, we have um, an internship most years, which is where um, a crew of, I think like 30 students, We'll come out to the farm and work a few hours a week, but then there's also educational events at the farm. Also, we have something called the Full Cycle Freight Program, which is what I would have run this year if it weren't for COVID, and I ran a smaller version, but that's where um, volunteers sign up. They're called flyers, and they bike around the city and pick up food waste from different restaurants and then bring it back to our farm to compost it. Okay, I just want to jump in really quick to brag about how great FH King really is. They're really key to food security on campus. I am also a bit involved in in FH King, and I went to basically every single um, harvest handouts this summer, and it was just really great to get this produce every week that I could use to uh, make creative meals and just, I don't know, keep myself fed from week to week without having to go to the grocery store, especially during a pandemic. I heard from a lot of students that came out, you know, they would never buy vegetables on their own. That's Molly again. But if they're given out for free, they will absolutely take them and eat them and find something to do with them. And so I think that's a huge thing that doesn't get talked about as much as like, yeah, maybe you can afford to buy ramen. um, And, you know, so you're not necessarily going hungry, but you're not getting all the nutrients you need. And so this produce is like ridiculously expensive and a lot of people, um, especially in college, just don't splurge on that. And so that's such a great thing as someone who really appreciates local food and eating vegetables and eating healthy. I, I don't even buy all the vegetables I should sometimes just because it's expensive. I mean, same, like I was joking this summer, like it took me literally working on a farm to like make my own salad for the first time. Like that's just not when you're 21, like that's just not high on your priorities. And like, it was crazy. Like just be able to have access to free veggies all summer. Like I was eating, I was like learning recipes and like, just like honestly feeling healthier. Like it's huge. Free produce was more in demand than ever this year. It pulled up our uh, exact numbers for this year because we were very proud of them. Um, I think this year we were able to harvest about 4,147 pounds of produce. um, And we averaged about 150 people that showed up a week. Um, so that was during the summer, it was every Tuesday. And then during the school year, it was every Sunday. Um, so that was that's a huge way that we try to address food insecurity on campus. In this episode, we're talking about food systems, which obviously implies a variety of organizations and operations. This is true here at UW-Madison. There's much more going on on campus in terms of food than FH King. There are quite a few student organizations and resources on campus that address food sustainability and food security. 
A short list includes the Campus Food Shed, which is free food gleaned from grocery stores and farmers, UW Frozen Meals, free packaged meals for students made of excess dining hall food, Open Seat, a food pantry just for students, and Slow Food, um, which, as Marina mentioned, offers community meals as an alternative to fast food. For more extensive information about these food resources and organizations, including how they're operating, if they're operating right now, check out the Office of Sustainability Food Resource page, which we'll link to in the show notes. Something I didn't consider much before these interviews is how funding affects the scope of an organization's work. Here's Molly again. Basically, because we get funding through segregated fees, we're one of like the, I don't know, couple orgs that get that. We have the the majority of our programming has to go to benefit the students. Um, But so basically our handouts, are on campus but anyone is welcome at our handouts and we definitely over summer over the summer had a few older folks and families that would show up um it was definitely majority students but we'd had a few people that would show up which was always great to see um because you know we were outside union south and then later in the year we were outside library mall which is on campus but still a pretty accessible space um and then yeah the majority of our programming is directed at students but it's of course open to anyone We also, um, this summer, a few weeks towards the end of the summer, we would prepare a grocery bag um, to give to the Black Umbrella Global um, organization. It was a pretty small bag, just full of greens, just sort of stuff that you wouldn't need to cook that you could just um, eat on the go. So we do a few smaller things for the community, but the majority of our work is focused on students. The pandemic has affected pretty much everything this year. This is certainly true in the case of campus food system work. Remembering back to March, when that sort of all happened, we were not sure if we would be able to operate at all this summer. Um, A lot of student orgs got shut down entirely just because of the rules that UW had to put in place. Um, So we wrote up our um, admin director and our finance director, wrote up an amazing proposal, or I guess sort of just sort of wrote up the safety precautions we would be taking this summer and um, sort of justified why it was really, really important that we were allowed to operate this summer, you know, with food insecurity um, increasing so much and so many food pantries were facing decreased supply, increased demand, decreased volunteers. Um, so they they agreed that we were an essential service and that we were allowed to continue. Um, so our, some of those precautions were that there would only be like two to three people out at the farm at a time. Our internship was not able to happen. We weren't allowed to hire any um, farmhands, which usually we t- hire two farmhands a summer to help out with our farm directors. Um, we weren't able to run the full cycle freight program or hire any volunteers for that. And obviously we weren't able to do any in-person programming. So it's very limiting. Um, essentially this summer, we just focused on food production when in other summers it's been more a little bit more focused on education with with food production still as a priority. But um, we were just like, you know, there's going to be a whole new community of people that need food and need nutritious food and need free food. Um, so we just tried to focus on increasing our output as much as we could. Um, and so that's and because all the other Um, directors, jobs were really limited, you know, no in-person programming. We were kind of just able to be out there getting the food to people. Um, So that was one way that it changed a lot. As far as with full full cycle freight, um, myself and the other urban ag director ran sort of like a mini version where we just like once a week or once every two weeks, we would go to a co-op on campus. Um, The Ambrosia Co-op and International Co-op, I believe, like combined their food waste. And we would just pick up their food waste and drop it off at our compost. Um, and so it was just like, you know, obviously a bummer because no volunteers, no um, like members came out, um, but we were able to grow a lot of food. It sounds like you were really able to be creative in a way that allowed you to retain your really core operations, which yeah. is kind of impressive. So awesome to hear that. The pandemic made people think about food differently. Health was on people's minds a lot more, so people were more interested in nutritious food, and also food was an opportunity to connect to friends and family. And that was like this year's version of the uh, farmer's market, because that wasn't allowed to happen. And so 
Um, I think that we had way higher numbers this year. And I think part of that was food insecurity. Part of that was people weren't as busy because nothing was open. And part of it was um, those fun Saturday morning, you know, activities, Sunday morning activities were all shut down. (laughs) And also just with the pandemic, um, just health concerns are obviously on everyone's minds. And so like nutritious, healthy, fresh food and so you know a lot of times even if you can't afford food you maybe can't afford the most nutritious food that's going to keep you the healthiest um, especially if you're a college student that's not always going to be your priority you're maybe going to be going for whatever's cheapest we finished our interview by asking molly what she is excited to get back to doing after the pandemic is over i think a huge thing would be one are get the dirt dinners because those were so awesome um to just be able to like cook for people and it's a it can be sometimes like a relatively small group but that can be better for like you know facilitating conversation and hearing from someone who's like doing great work in food system in sustainability um and then just being able to like discuss it with them like it's not really like a traditional like speaker it's sort of more they give their spiel and then we just talk and share a meal um that was just such a special thing that we were able to do but also more general just like literally being able to meet with our members i miss that so much like right now so many people ask us on instagram like how can i join this org how can i get involved and like i just direct them to our group meet um which anyone can join but like it's just not the same like we'll tell them when we're having a virtual speaker and like you know we'll tell them when we're having like some kind of competition or some kind of online event but it's not the same as be able to see people's faces and like get to know people of course there is much more to the world than what happens on college campuses which might be a surprising thought to many college students so marina and i reached out to someone else who could enlighten us about the current state of food security outside of uw madison You got it. I am the manager here at Feed Kitchens on the north side of Madison. That's a um, shared commercial kitchen food business incubator. That's Chris Brockle, who agreed to talk to us about a couple food security projects serving the greater Madison community. I'm also a member of the Madison Food Policy Council. I've uh, been uh, on that council since its inception in 2013. And I have about 20 plus years experience working in food system from warehousing to a coordinating network of food pantries in southern Wisconsin, uh, operating a community gardens program. I was the executive director at Fair Share CSA Coalition for a while. Um, And then here at Feed Kitchens. That's me. Going into this interview, we knew that Chris was the director of a program at Feed Kitchens called Healthy Food for All. So we were excited to hear about that. Here's Chris again. Healthy Food for All is a backbone support organization. We do not hand out food. For the most part, we don't hand out food directly to individuals. We don't run a pantry. What we're doing is we're collecting food and then and then um, cleaning it up, making it look nice, aggregating it, repacking it, um, making it look like it would look in a grocery store or a farmer's market, and then getting it to a food pantry so that they can distribute it. Um, so we certainly, we work with second harvest. We work with community action coalition. We work with, uh, you know, multiple, uh, food pantries, especially on the North side, but, th- you know, throughout Madison, we've had a great relationship with the Middleton outreach ministry, um, as well. And so those, um, those are sort of our emergency food partners, um, we also have community centers that are doing feeding programs. You wouldn't consider them necessarily a food pantry or community meal site per se, but they're feeding children or adults within the within the community center who live around there who are primarily low income. Um, so we make food available for for those um, things as well. We have we're very loose in in what we do. You know, we're we want to feed low-income people. We want to feed hungry people. We want to reduce food waste. Ultimately, we trust if you're taking food from us that you're going to, you're going to put it in the right hands. At the end of the day, we would, have, we would rather have anybody take it rather than throw it out. 
of Healthy Food for All's focus is uh, food recovery um, from local farms and food recovery from large events and cafeterias. So basically prepared food that uh, is probably in large enough quantities that a food pantry um, can't deal with it um, unless something else happens to it between the donor and themselves. And that, that would be us. So we're, we're in a commercial kitchen, uh, which allows us then to safely handle food, repackage it, um, and uh, reuse it for um, other things. Chris explained his inspiration for Healthy Food for All, which stemmed from his time working with local farmers via an organization called Fair Share CSA Coalition. Basically, it was my connection with my connection with local farms that uh, made me realize that there was really wonderful, healthy local food available uh, that we get to uh, people within the city that were experiencing food shortage. Um, and but those farmers were frustrated because second harvest wouldn't come and pick it up because there wasn't enough food on any single farm for their to make it worth their trip, and they really wanted to have a system that they could make donations. And so that was the that was the start of Healthy Food for All. Chris has worked in food systems for some time, particularly in the realm of food access and food pantries. His previous work with an organization called Community Action Coalition, which aims to socially and economically empower people in South Central Wisconsin, gave him a good understanding of the food pantry network in Dane County. We know that people in this county struggle and they're not making enough money and that the the, uh, minimum wage and and hourly rates are um, outstripped by far just by the exorbitant rents that people have to pay in this town. There are hungry people, but relative to what you might see in the rest of the country, um, you know, our problems are, while they're bad, they're not as bad as other places. I think that in Dane County, um, it's a county that cares well. We have a food pantry system that is decentralized. So there's, there's food pantries, um, throughout uh, low-income neighborhoods uh, that's purposeful in some big cities you might find centralized food pantries where people are you know asked to ride buses and go to this kind of big mega pantry grocery store type situation or here you can you know there's when i left cac there were 47 food pantries in dane county Um, so that meant that you know some towns like stoughton had two food pantries Uh, that meant that some geographical areas had more you know, way more than one food pantry that was available to them. Um, and so between food pantries and community meal sites and caring people, you know, there is food available. Is it the right kind of food? Is it the food that people want? Those are the questions that that, that I really like to work on. Um, you know, certainly we want to make sure that supplies are adequate, but we also want to make sure that we're giving people um things that are culturally relevant to them and things that are healthy for them to for them to eat and not just throwing um, crap at them. It's interesting how that mindset is around so much. You mentioned earlier, you know, like putting restrictions on what people can use SNAP or food stamps for. Um, I remember years ago doing some volunteer work at a like a free meal place and they were talking about like, don't try and force someone to take the green beans. If they don't like the green beans, they don't like green beans. Yeah. And, and you certainly hear, I hear it from very well-meaning people who really do care, who at some point might say something like, you know, make a donation and just say, well, if they're hungry, they'll eat it. Right. Otherwise they're just not hungry enough. Apparently it's like, yeah, well, bad attitude, but dignity, dignity and food choices. Yep. <laughs> wanted to break in for a moment to introduce a term relating to food. In this part of the interview, Chris and Hannah were talking about dignity and respect when it comes to food access, and another way of describing those concepts is through the phrase food autonomy. Food autonomy can combine food security and self-sufficiency. The Regroupment of Cuisine Collective of Quebec came up with a really interesting um way to describe food autonomy, which is through four pillars. Um, And the four pillars are access, power, respect, and action. For access, they state that access for all people to a sufficient quantity of quality food and to food resources at a reasonable cost. 
So I think that's more of the um, food security standpoint of just actually making sure people have access to healthy food. Yeah. This reminds me of the uh, model for food security earlier. Um, The second one is power um, in the form of the ability to purchase with full dignity a variety of healthy foods that are also to our taste, including being well-informed and well-equipped to make good choices. So this kind of combines the financial aspect earlier with also um, a knowledge aspect too, which I think is cool. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, Chris does a good job of talking about you know, making sure that foods um, that they're preparing are culturally relevant and foods that people are actually going to want to eat and feel comfortable and happy and excited to eat. I think it kind of returns that power to them. Um, And the next one I thought was interesting, respect, is um, respect for nature, the environment, um, communities, and neighborhoods. So this focuses more on the eco-responsible management of resources Um, and fairness in the way that these resources are shared among everyone. Um, So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like looking at kind of local food systems and where you're actually like getting your food. Yeah. I feel like that probably has an aspect of knowing too, because you want to know the people who grew the food and the environment that produced it and in order to have respect for it. So this fourth one action, um, involves both collective and individual action, sort of the ability to really carry out the previous three pillars um, to be able to personally live out the the respect, the power, and the access. Yeah, so um, I've been given some hope through these interviews that action is definitely being taken um, in order to fulfill uh, food autonomy for everyone in our community. Now, let's return to something Chris mentioned when he introduced himself. Feed is a food business incubator. It's a commercial kitchen that hosts 85 businesses, offering them kitchen and equipment usage, as well as other support. This plays a key role in food and economic autonomy. 55% of our business operators are women. 50% of our business operators are um, people of color. Um, so I think that leads to, you know, that's a sort of a different type of food security thing where people, food security in, in essence, where people are taking control of their own lives, taking control of their own income, taking control of their own wealth, um, and supplying for their family in a very different way. Food insecurity has been a much larger issue this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. For example, some numbers from Feeding America's report on the impact of the coronavirus on food insecurity in 2020 showed that Insecurity is 15.6%, up 4.1% from 2018. And the number is even higher among children, 23.1%, up 4.9% from 2018. These numbers are pretty staggering. So we asked Chris what the change in food insecurity looked like in the Madison area. For, for years when I was at Community Action Coalition, the, the number of people in Dane County um, that were visiting food pantries, and that, that's a measure certainly of, of food insecurity, was pretty stable. So somewhere around 80,000 to 85,000 family visits to food pantries in Dane County per year. In 2008, with the, with the economic downturn, in that year, in 2008, we went from about 80 to 85,000 visits to 160,000 visits, so almost doubled. Well, anyway, that economic, we made it through that economic downturn. So I think the numbers dropped, but they didn't drop back to pre-economic downturn levels. Then comes uh, the pandemic, right? And so the pandemic sort of blows everything out of the water again. And I think probably even more so than the economic downturn of a few years ago. I don't know what the numbers are right now, but what I'm hearing is, you know, as many as 40% of of uh, families now are having to visit a food pantry at least maybe not regularly but at least once and certainly talking to food pantry people they're seeing lots of people who have never ever visited a food pantry and never thought they'd be in that position 
Similar to F.H. King, feed kitchens also shifted their operations to focus more on feeding people in response to the pandemic. Chris explained to us a program called Feed to Go that started in the spring with the aim of providing free, culturally relevant meals to those facing food insecurity. We were approached in mid-March about a community meal program with um, Boys and Girls Club. Um, because we have a, you know, a big commercial kitchen operation here, actually five separate production kitchens, um, and we host food carts and caterers and lots of wonderful chefs, uh, we were able to uh, quickly respond to that, kind of switch the use of this facility from uh, private business food production to cranking out, paying chefs to crank out meals for the community. And we started a program called Feed to Go. Um, and then we paid chefs here to make meals and package meals that then were sent out to be distributed in the community at no cost. Um, and we ran that program from March, mid-March through the beginning of July. And at the height of that program, we were sending out over 600 meals a day. And we were sending those out to 15 different uh, community centers and food pantries across the county. So were those meals um, free to the people who received them? Yep, absolutely. So we did, uh, what we did, we had initial funding from the Boys and Girls Club. Um, he, uh, Michael Johnson did, a, did some fundraising for COVID response. Um, so some of that money was spent here. Then, uh, so a lot of the places that we were dropping off food, not every place, um, they had money of their own that they then paid for part of those meals uh, to be delivered to their program. So for instance, um, uh, Bayview Community Center in the Triangle neighborhood off uh, West Washington Avenue. Um, they have their own foundation. Um, they wanted uh, specifically Asian style meals prepared. Um, and so we paid for half of those meals and the chef, and then they paid for half of those meals and we delivered them to them over the course of those 17 weeks. Um, but but the person receiving the meal never paid for it. That we found the story of how Feed to Go came together to be a really inspiring example of people's care for community and people's capacity to come together to create change. Chris explained the way both community and producers stepped up to help make it happen, and also some of the challenges that the program faced when trying to function during the pandemic. I had uh, you know a farm uh, step up and supplied us with spinach for every meal that we would possibly need to do during the during these the weeks that we were running the program. RP's pasta stepped up and supplied us with 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 pasta for every meal that we would need to make and never had to pay for for a bit of it. Um, other places as well. Uh, um, Fisher Family Farms is a local farm that does meat production. Uh, hundreds of frozen chickens. Um, pounds and pounds of ground beef, pounds of uh, of beef franks. Actually, they were meant to be in concession store in concessions at the Henry Violet Zoo, but that wasn't going to open. So they donated all the all the franks to us, um, and so that was that was revealing as well. Um, certainly, found out a lot of things about the food system during that pandemic. In in that. Um, you know, inventory, supply chains, watching how they worked or didn't work. Um, you know, there were times we couldn't we couldn't get a grain of rice, or we couldn't get chicken, or we couldn't get pork, or we could get it only, but only only chicken legs, nothing else, or or the, the way it was packaged. And so the the food system really struggled in the beginning. I think it's kind of switching over now, but we still see shortages. You know, now we're seeing shortages in things like um, food safe gloves. We used to pay less than $3 for, oh, about $3 for a box of 100 uh, gloves. We're now paying $23 for that same box of gloves, if you can even find them. Uh, but we have to have them in the facility. You can't produce food and make manufactured food without covering your hands and keeping it safe. Um, 
you know, so that's just uh, some example. To-go containers. Oh, my God. You know, every restaurant in the world is doing to-go now, right? Carry out. Trying to find those containers uh, has been a scramble at times uh, because everybody's ordering them and they're running out, and the cost is going way up. Um, that being said, every to-go container that I ever sent out of here, and that's 600 a day, I felt guilty about every single one of them <laughs> because here we are, you know, we have this whole food waste reduction thing going, and on the other hand, we're sending out to-go containers that we know probably weren't going to be recycled and filling up landfills. Yeah, it's a tricky time for sustainability. It sure is. <laughs> yes, it is. So I'm going to have some penance to do at some point in my life for, for all those to-go containers. But I'm sure it was worth it. <laughs> I hope so. One of the really interesting points to come out of this interview was that people's efforts in terms of food security work can often be ineffective or misdirected if they do not listen to the people who would eat the food or the people who actually know information about the food system that they're trying to help. Chris kept coming back to this idea over and over. And apparently it's more true this year than ever. A couple of things you're seeing in the news right now, Thanksgiving basket programs are always popular regardless of the year. This year, I think people really want to step up and what I'm seeing. Um, so you got grocery stores, companies, uh, individuals, food pantries, all doing sort of these, these food Thanksgiving basket giveaways to the point where there are now places that are begging people to come and get these baskets because they have too many of them. Yeah. So, you, yeah. So we have, you know, places, there are places like the Goodman Center that traditionally do a basket program. And that's where people sort of think of when you think of Thanksgiving in Madison, it's the Goodman Center does it. But now you've got, you know, grocery stores and other people doing it. And I don't think they ever really had a plan as to, you know, let's just offer these to the community. I'm seeing on my neighborhood uh, a listserv where people that work in these places are saying, anybody, anybody, doesn't matter if you're, if you're low income or not, come and get a turkey. We've got so many of them. Um, so, you know, that's, that is an example of, you know, people being generous, but not thinking through about, you know, what is really needed. Um, you know, it drives me nuts at any given any given time when there's a, a need and people's first response is, let's do a food drive. It's like, oh my God, that's the worst thing you could do. Having having overseen food drives for 14 years, give me money, I'll go out and buy exactly what is needed and I can do it a lot cheaper than you can do it through a food drive. Number two, and it, wait, and it uses a lot of my resources now to drive trucks around and use people to go pick up this this food. You know, and, the, and the final thing is there's there's lots of really good local food. Like if you would support uh, an organization like Healthy Food for All, we can make sure there's all kinds of good food. Then you don't have to go out and buy it. It's free. It's here. You know, when I talk to people, I say, you know, having worked in the food system for for as long as I have, food is not the problem. I can find food. I can get more food than you than any single place can store. The problem is distribution. The problem is infrastructure. The problem is trucking, transportation, storage. Those are the issues. Um, and so going out and, and purchasing more food feels good, but it's not. It's ultimately not answering the, the problem. That's a great point. Food is not the problem. The problem is, is distribution. I've heard that in a larger scale in, in some food systems classes that I've been in, because that's even the case globally. You know, if we talk about... Being able to feed the world, it's not an issue of food production or, you know, land that could produce food. It's an issue of like what it is and where it is and who, who has it. Right. And, and you hear that all the time, right? You hear that. I mean, certainly we heard it during the last election cycle and you'll, you'll hear it again, certainly from big agribusiness folks is we got, we got to feed all these billions of mouths and we'll never do it. And so therefore, you know, we got to have all this, um, you know, petro, they will never say petrochemical, but that's what it is, right? Industrial food system stuff, we got to produce, produce, produce. It's like, no, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. All we have to do is is use more wisely what is already being produced. I mean, if 40% of all the world's food that is grown is never consumed, that's a huge problem. And that's that's where we need to be solving, not not growing more so we can 
continue to waste that 40%. We wanted to close on an optimistic note. So we asked Chris what he was excited about when this pandemic is over, and also what he thinks we can learn from the experience of the pandemic. So the things I'm excited about, one, that people remember what happened, and that people are committed to supporting organizations like ours and many others that are committed to creating a different food system that that will not collapse given a pandemic or a natural disaster. Um, that we can supply as best we can. We're never going to be 100%, but that we can supply for ourselves uh, what we need to um, and not be dependent on what could be shipped from California, Argentina, um, or anywhere else. So I'm excited to work on that. I'm excited to really dig down on on food waste. I think that's all part of that same conversation, you know, the 40% that's never consumed, the 25% that you purchase and never eat in your own house. Um, of really, really digging onto that. And again, hopefully people um, remember what it was like during the pandemic and are as committed to change after the pandemic as they were during the pandemic. That's our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in. To learn more about the topics discussed in today's show, check out our show notes to find links to a variety of resources mentioned in this episode. Special thanks to our guests this episode, Molly DeVore, Urban Agriculture Director for FH King Students for Sustainable Agriculture, and Chris Brockle, Feed Kitchens Manager and Project Manager for Healthy Foods for All. Thanks also to Kathy Middlecamp and Missy Nergard, co-directors of the Office of Sustainability, and to Nathan Yandel, Assistant Director of and De facto Communications Expert for the Office of Sustainability. Thanks to Jason Gallup, Director of the OS Student Intern Program, to the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and to Facilities Planning and Management. The making of this episode required a lot of behind-the-scenes work from the rest of the OS podcast team, including Brooke Bowser, Cassie Sanford, Carissa Gatto, Katie McDonald, Norma Baron-Martinez, Natalie Tinson, and Savannah Holt. This episode was edited by Hannah Casson. We'll be back next month with another episode. Until then, know that we'll be thinking about how to best sustain UW.